0: Welcome to the American Occupational Therapy Pediatric Virtual Chat, and thank you so much for listening. My name is Sandy Shefkin. I am the AOTA Pediatric Program Manager, and I'll be the moderator for this call. This chat, led by content experts, reviews a specific topic that has relevance for pediatric occupational therapy and for school services. The call is recorded and posted in a repository that's found on the TalkShoe site. All the recordings can be found at www.talkshoe.com backslash TC backslash 73733. Our speakers will respond to some frequently asked questions on this topic about children, students, and diabetes and it's the hopes of helping to advance pediatric practice and occupational therapy practice. We hope that you'll share the link to this chat and continue dialoguing about this topic on OT Connections, which is our forum. Today we'll be discussing, again, how to support children with diabetes in school, and I'd like to introduce our speakers and thank them so much for facilitating our conversation today. We have Dr. Katie Polo. She is a certified and licensed occupational therapist and has a doctorate in health science. Her scholarship areas of interest focus on self-management of chronic conditions and occupational performance deficits related to the late effects of cancer survivorship. Katie is the physical disabilities special interest section editor for the American Occupational Therapy Association and she is an assistant professor in the School of Occupational Therapy at the University of Indianapolis. Another speaker we have today is Dr. Susan Cahill. She's a certified licensed occupational therapist with a PhD in special education. Her scholarship interests focus on supporting children at risk for learning or mental health concerns at school and expanding the scope of school based occupational therapy practice. She's a fellow of the American Occupational Therapy Association and an associate professor at Lewis University in Romeoville, Illinois. Susan is also the Program Director for Lewis's Developing Occupational Therapy Program. And our third speaker is Sandy Burnett. She's a registered nurse. She recently completed her Baccalaureate of Science in Nursing. She's employed as a school nurse at the Indiana Middle School and is an active member of NASN, the National Association of School Nurses. She's an advocate for wellness and education. So again, thank you all three of you for joining us today and leading this conversation. And I'm I'm wondering if Susan, uh, if you wouldn't mind getting us started to give us some overview, really tell us a little bit more about what is diabetes, how many children have diabetes, you know, what kind of concern is it and what kinds of issues do children with diabetes encounter in school? Sure. Well, diabetes is a group
1: of metabolic conditions, and there are two types of diabetes that children can have. Uh, One is type 1 diabetes, and the other is type 2. So in type 1 diabetes, the body's pancreas makes little or no insulin, because beta cells that make the insulin are actually destroyed by the immune system. That means that people with type 1 diabetes have to take insulin every day, often several times per day. This condition is usually seen in children and adolescents, but we know that it can also appear in some older people as well. With type 2 diabetes, a person's body doesn't make enough insulin or doesn't respond in the right way to insulin. Sometimes it's a combination of both. The majority of people with diabetes, when you think about both adults and kids in the United States, the majority will have type 2. We used to think that this kind of diabetes only occurred in the adult population, really those people over 40. But we're seeing it more and more in children, adolescents, and young adults. We know that when we think about kids with diabetes that roughly 80% of them will have um, some level of obesity or overweight status. And the hypothesis really is that more children and teens are developing type 2 diabetes due to obesity and inactivity. Those diagnosed with type 2 diabetes manage their disease through a combo of treatment including diet control, exercise, self-monitoring of blood glucose levels, they might take oral medications, and in some cases also they may take insulin. We used to think that childhood diabetes was a rare condition, but it's becoming more of a public health concern. We used to think that the incidence of type 1 diabetes was relatively stable, but that condition has um, increased nationally since the earliest 20th century. And the American Diabetes Association says that something like three to four kids out of every 1,000 will need insulin for type 1 diabetes. And this doesn't even include the children with type 2, who would also require treatment and care. Many of these children go undiagnosed, but we are starting to note that the incidence of type 2 diabetes for children between 10 and 19 years of age is thought to have increased by 21% in just eight years. So, Being a kid and going to school and getting homework done and then having to participate or wanting to participate in extracurricular activities can be hard enough. But when we layer on the complications of having to take care of a chronic medical condition, it can be overwhelming for some kids and families too. We know that kids with diabetes are more at risk than their classmates for inconsistent school attendance, strained peer relationships, poor classroom performance, and even some associated mental health concerns. For students to achieve optimal control over their diabetes, they must regularly check their blood glucose levels, eat a healthy diet, engage in frequent physical activity, and all of that can take a toll on the child. In addition, we know that some students are going to need to self-administer several injections each day and or also check um, their insulin pump. The performance of these behaviors are critical as is the negotiation of who is gonna help the child to take responsibility for this implementation. Um, Will it be the parents at home? Will it be people in the school? Or even possibly, will the child take on all of these responsibilities by themselves? One thing that we do know is that in order to maintain their condition, or rather manage their condition, children with diabetes need to learn uh, good self-management skills.
0: Thank you so much. That's a wonderful overview, and I think it's really helping to frame our discussion today. Um, Sandy, would you mind sharing a little bit about what are the signs of a diabetic emergency? Oh, sure. That's no
2: problem. Um, Signs of a diabetic emergency include shaking, sweating, dizziness. Uh, They might feel hungry, um, have some trouble with their vision, weakness fatigue or even irritability. Um, All of those signs are indicative of a low blood sugar which is actually what's more emergent in a diabetic and if not treated the student could progress into a seizure and lose consciousness.
0: And so Katie, what about the self-management? Can can you talk about what other types of client populations benefit from learning about self-management as well? Absolutely, well Susan,
2: already kind of indicated that self-management is a very key component um, for a person with diabetes. And in general, self-management is managing oneself or taking responsibility for one's own behavior and also for one's own well-being. Because of the larger prevalence of chronic conditions, there is a growing interest in self-management programs that aim to help people not only medically manage their condition, but also maintain life roles and manage or process their emotional reactions such as fear or depression. In regards to diabetes, the National Standard for Diabetes Self-Management Education and Support states that diabetes self-management education um, as the ongoing process of facilitating knowledge, skill, and ability necessary for pre-diabetes and diabetes self-care. And diabetes self-management support as activities that assist the person with pre-diabetes or diabetes in implementing and sustaining the behaviors needed to manage his or her condition on an ongoing basis. So client populations that benefit from learning about self-management, are those that have performance deficits associated with chronic conditions, such as chronic lung diseases, like asthma or COPD, chronic heart disease, hypertension, arthritis, chronic pain, and survivors of cancer, just to name a few um, that would benefit from self-management.
0: So, Susan, how are schools helping kids to manage their diabetes and and self-management?
1: Well, many schools have set up a system where each student with diabetes, whether it's type one or type two, has a comprehensive diabetes medical management plan, It's sometimes called a DMMP. Um, this plan outlines really the diabetes management tasks that will be performed at school and also who will perform them. So, sometimes it's the child alone, sometimes it's the child with supervision by another adult and sometimes it is uh, with supervision by the nurse or it's the school nurse who actually performs them. The problem that we're finding in practice, at least in our area um, in Illinois, is that school nurses have sometimes huge caseloads. And in some school districts, there might be limiting, limited funding that could prohibit them from being in a particular school on a, on a daily basis, or um, you know being there at the right period of time where the child would need that assistance or support. So, so sometimes other people, occupational therapy practitioners could be one example, may need to help support these students.
0: I'd just like to mention that I know that there's the National Coalition on Personnel Shortages in Special Education and Related Services, and that might be a good place for people to go to learn more information about personnel shortages um, for school nurses and for school occupational therapy practitioners and others. Um, Sandy, can you help us uh, uh, and talk about the role of the school nurse in, with, for serving children with diabetes? and how you use a diabetes medical ma- management plan in the school setting?
2: Absolutely. Uh, the diabetic medical management plan outlines uh, the nursing actions that we perform in the school setting. Um, as I mentioned before, it tells um, you know, the action that needs to be done, like checking the student's blood sugar, and who is responsible for that action. The doctor typically write uh, standing orders that are followed during the regular school day. Um, and also will include any interventions that need to be taken if the blood sugar is too high or too low and um, give us some guidelines for when the physician needs to be called and notified of the blood sugar. So mostly the nurse will oversee the care of the student, but as mentioned before, um, with the nursing shortage, there can be um, other unlicensed personnel to help with the care of the student and help to educate the student to help them learn self-care.
0: So what kinds of things do kids with diabetes need help with and how might this be part of this a diabetes medical management plan? Katie, can you help us? Well, sure, absolutely. Um, most recently,
2: we performed a national survey study looking at school nurses' perceptions of students with diabetes at school. Perceptions related to self-management concerns of students with diabetes interprofessional approach to management of diabetes at school and potential interventions for diabetes self-management skills promotion were explored. And of the 297 surveys that were sent, 61 were returned to yield close to about a 20% response rate. To give you a background of practice settings of our participants in our study, Um, more than half of them, or 52.5%, worked in elementary schools, with the remainder working in middle school, junior high setting, which was about 28.8%, and about 18.6% worked in high school settings. So a large number of our respondents, or approximately 91.8%, reported that the instruction and maintenance of diabetes self-management skills would benefit from an interprofessional team approach. And uh, Susan and I, we, we were really excited to hear that, um, that, that nurses and school nurses were very willing to um, take on um, interprofessional collaboration with students um, in terms of self-management skills for students with diabetes at school. However, only about 20.8% identified occupational therapists as professionals that are equipped to assist in addressing the needs of students with diabetes, um, which we kind of found a little surprising in a way. So close to two-thirds, or 62.7% of the school nurse respondents indicated that one of their biggest concerns um, that students have not incorporated self-management strategies into their daily routines, uh, which was um, something that we felt that potentially OTs might have a collaborative role with. So to add to this, 78.6% of respondents indicated that the skills of an interprofessional team could help to address education related to how self-management fits into daily routines. Another pressing concern that was also highlighted by close to 60% of the participants was that families or parents might not be following the children's diabetic guidelines at home. So the Diabetes Medical Management Plan, or that DMPP that Susan had kind of talked about, um, outlined diabetic self-care skills the students need in order to successfully manage their diabetes, and also to what extent of assistance or supervision is required with each task. Um, And I believe Sandy had kind of talked and highlighted some of those areas on the DMPP um, already, but those can be blood glucose checking skills, self-care insulin administration skills, self-care pump skills, and all of those things are imperative to building self-management strategies in children with diabetes at school. And something that um, obviously we feel that um, an interdisciplinary or an interprofessional team approach um, could
0: benefit from. I think this is such an important um, information in terms of sharing about um, how, how does an interprofessional team work best and for working within one's scope of practice and within one's um, uh, licensure uh, law and, or, or practice act, but also working with understanding each other's roles and responsibilities. And um, I think you've we've, we've well shared um, the importance of this idea of being able to assist um, with the needs of students who have a medical need, but, of course, with the, the proper um, supports and, uh, again, aligning with their scope of practice. So, Sandy? Yes. I was,
1: I was just thinking, uh, based on what you were talking about, you know, thinking about our scope of practice and uh, making sure we're still practicing sort of within our scope of practice, it might also be important for people who are listening to know that, um Many uh, state boards of education or Department of Human Services in the states that they may work in may have documents that sort of guide um, how medical conditions are managed in those states, specifically in the school systems, and they might outline specific rules and regulations. I know in Illinois we have one that's a joint um, a joint document from the Illinois Department of Human Services and the Illinois State Board of Ed that documents, you know, sort of what the role of the school nurse is in relation to administration of medication and then what the role of everybody else is. And I think it's important to note that while we might be able to help as occupational therapy practitioners to support the development of self-management skills, we're not necessarily taking on the role of doing that um, administration of the medication, that so that would still be relegated to the nurse or the other professionals um, that are supposed to do it or whoever else is in that plan that's been approved uh, and overseen by the nurse.
0: And I think that speaks so well to this being a launching point, this conversation being a launching point for investigating the resources that you have in your state and what are the guidelines that AOTA offers, and I know we're going to be talking more about some resources in a few minutes, but what kind of information do we have at the national level and then what does your state tell you and what does your licensure tell you um, and and to have an ongoing Um, dialogue and collaboration with your other um, specialized instructional support personnel like your school nurses so that you can um, work in a collaborative way with the supports from your administration, et cetera, so that we're all in alignment. So I I think this is such a wonderful conversation about collaboration and about respect and understanding each other's roles. Um, Thank you for that clarification, Susan. That's really, really wonderful. Um, Sandy, can you um can we move forward in talking about what sorts of things do kids with diabetes need help with at school in terms of the self management that we we know is so so necessary?
2: Sure, um as a middle school nurse, I think some of the biggest concerns I see um, with my kids is the that they need reinforcement and um, extra help learning how to count carbohydrates. So many of their insulin dosing is based on what they've eaten and being able to have the resources to find that information and calculate it correctly so that they can calculate the correct insulin dose um, is very, very important. Um, A lot of kids now in our age of technology have apps on their phones or on their iPads where they can just input the numbers and it will just say give this amount of insulin. But I try to really enforce with my kids that you need to learn how to be able to do that in the event that you don't have your phone or you don't have your iPad or for whatever reason you have to figure it out on your own. And that can be um, challenging in our age of technology, but um, I do really stress that that's important. Um, most middle school kids have mastered being able to check their own blood sugar um, and to be able to dose their insulin um, using either their pump or their PIN, but making sure they're giving the correct amount, I feel like is vital to the kids to learn that.
0: And then can you um, talk about the um, trajectory, like the, the age of the kids, and how um, this will influence um, their self-management needs and supports? So the, how, what is, how does it differ for kids who are in elementary school, for example, as opposed to those in the high school level?
2: Sure. Well, typically elementary students are uh, newly diagnosed. This is all new for them. You know, they're still learning their math skills, so they require a lot of assistance with counting carbohydrates, calculating the insulin, and often even administering it themselves. Um, It's scary to give yourself a shot. So... um, there's a lot of support needed at the elementary level, and then depending on the age they were diagnosed and how long they've been doing this, often as they move into middle school, they're really able to do um, most of those activities with minimal supervision, um, because they've done it for so long, they know what to do. Uh, Oftentimes, I'm just there to double check their math, make sure they're, you know, drawing up that correct amount of insulin or typing stuff in correctly, um, so not to make a medication error. Usually when the student moves on to high school, they're typically very independent in their diabetic care, like I said, unless they would happen to be a later diagnosis that they're still learning. Most kids have um, learned how to do the carbohydrate counting, how to figure up their insulin. Oftentimes the nurses at the high school level don't even actually see the kids every day depending on that diabetic management plan that we talked about earlier and kind of how the physician outlines their care to be given, but a lot of kids at the high school level are independent and they just seek the nurse if there's an issue, if they run out of insulin or if their blood sugar drops too low and they need a snack or something that would just require um, intervention outside of their normal daily uh, carbohydrate counting and insulin dosing.
0: Thank you so much. Can you tell us about some areas of self-management interventions that would lend themselves well to this type of interprofessional collaboration?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think um, working together to reinforce uh, carbohydrate counting is important, Um, working on those math skills and helping them figure out their insulin dosing. A lot lot of kids, especially at the younger age, need repetition, and so being able to go through that with um, different people would... um, definitely help to reinforce those um, skills and just give them the extra practice they need. Um, I've found that a lot of parents often are relying on the technology that these kids are using to help them. And so oftentimes the parents don't completely understand how this dosing works. And so sometimes, you know, at school with me is the only time the student is doing the math without the technology and figuring out how to do the insulin and the carbohydrate counting. So um, I think having other people to step in and help and reinforce that would be very effective and beneficial.
0: And how about the beginning signs of having the low blood sugar? Wouldn't that be something else that the OT could help with the sort of self-advocacy and the self-management of, of the child learning how to be more in tune with their own body and, um, and, and, and current levels of function so that they could seek out help if needed.
2: Absolutely, that's a great point. I find um, teaching kids how their body feels and knowing what that means um, is very important as well when they're lear- You know, first diagnosed and learning how this blood sugar is affecting the way their body feels. And so, yes, definitely teaching them the signs and symptoms and listening to their body and um, responding in the correct way would definitely be a good resource.
0: Right, and even the insight for you know, the the routines of the day and when they might be most susceptible, like before lunch or after lunch or, you know, different times of the day. So that kind of temporal piece to their health um, would really maybe be something else that an occupational therapy practitioner might be attuned to.
2: Absolutely, yes.
0: Um, Susan, that leads us to what what are some of the AOTA resources on childhood diabetes? And I just, as you are talking about this, I'm also thinking about some other materials that are may not be specific to diabetes but might be related in terms of, some, we have materials on obesity uh, prevention and promotion um, that may dovetail into um, this and we have a whole school mental health toolkit. So I think there are some other materials that would not be direct to diabetes but might be some correlates. Sure, well,
1: AOTA also has um, a fact sheet about OT's role in diabetes management. Um, this fact sheet is nice because it's applicable to our role with people with diabetes across the lifespan, um, and it's available through the AOTA website. If you just go and search um, right on the homepage, search diabetes, it will come right up. Another thing that will come up if you search for diabetes is a consumer consumer tip sheet for people living with diabetes, and it's free, and, and you're able to download it and share that with um, consumers um, if need be. Um, another resource is a continuing ed... Um, product that's related to diabetes self-management, and this one's specifically for children with diabetes. It's actually based on a scoping review that Katie and I completed with our colleague, Dr. Brad Egan, and an occupational therapy student named Nadia Morasti. And the article appeared in AJOT, and the CE offering is available through the AOTA store. And you could just get to that by going to um, Education and Careers, and then tabbing to Continuing Ed, and then
0: searching the store for diabetes. I think this is such a wonderful conversation, it's making me think about the connection between health and education and how kids aren't healthy, how can they learn. And um, AOTA is a um, a, a participant in a coalition called the National um, Coordinating Committee on School Health and Safety and they talk about mental and physical health in that coalition and um, I think that this information today is very, very relevant to, to the goals of that, of that coalition and know, knowing that um, that the AOTA members should be reassured that we are trying to make these connections and, and share um, these wonderful kinds of stories um, when we're in these coalitions to highlight the great work that's being done by, by all of you. And I think it's very um, indicative of, of this chat today. So, um, Katie, would you be able to share with us about some of the evidence um, on this type of issue? Sure,
2: Sandy. Um, The scoping review of the literature that Susan was just talking about was just recently released in the September-October issue of AJOT last year in um, 2016. So, the purpose of the review was to explore the existing evidence related to the use of interventions to teach children and youth with diabetes self-management skills. The body of the literature came from within and outside the field of occupational therapy because we found that very little intervention research has been completed inside the field of occupational therapy with children and youth with diabetes. So overall, occupational therapy practitioners can support children with diabetes as they develop self-management skills, such as self-monitoring their conditions, for example, monitoring blood glucose levels, and monitoring symptoms of hypo or hyperglycemia, self-administering medications, problem solving, and reducing the risk of further complications. So, specifically, occupational therapy practitioners can assist children with diabetes before middle school with learning or understanding the skills associated with self-management such as self-administration of insulin, um, one example that we've kind of talked about already. Additionally, they can work on readiness skills for self-management, such as learning about diabetes and promoting a healthy lifestyle. As the child develops into adolescence, they can shift intervention to performance of self-management skills. So we have this issue that students with diabetes need to learn skills of self-management for their chronic condition. However, oftentimes they struggle with routine maintenance because of the skills needed to successfully perform this, like blood glucose monitoring, healthy eating, and exercising, typically fall outside their usual performance patterns. And this can this has been supported in a study by Elizabeth Piatek in 2011 in an AJOT issue. Additionally, the nursing survey study that we recently performed found that about 80% of the respondents perceived developing strategies to deal with unanticipated events to be a needed intervention for self-management skills promotion in children with diabetes. So this is where we feel OTs really would make a perfect collaborator with school nurses to promote self-management strategies in children with diabetes. Essentially, occupational therapists really could work with children with diabetes in navigating how their routines can be implemented successfully into their days and how they can best problem solve and navigate unanticipated events while continuing to self-manage. The findings actually from our scoping review also suggested that practitioners should include the children's parents into the diabetes self-management interventions um, to increase adherence of self-management routines, also to increase use of self-management skills the child is using, and to increase the child's accountability for their own diabetic care. Working with the families is, I think, critical um, in building and fostering these self-management skills in children. Technology can be very useful for intervention, and evidence also told us within our systematic review that using technology may support the development of self-management skills in children with diabetes. So, OT practitioners should consider using technology to creatively address diabetes self-management, such as using cell phone apps for reminders and for glucose recording and tracking.
0: That's so fascinating, such interesting information. Thank you so much for sharing it. Um, We're not out of time yet, but we're getting close. Um, I know that there may be some takeaway messages for our occupational therapy listeners today, and it would be great to hear from um, each of you, if you're willing, to say what would be some takeaway messages. You know, I'd like to start by saying, I'm thinking about just the idea of collaboration in the schools. Do, do In a typical school, does the school nurse know the school occupational therapy practitioner? And does the school occupational therapy practitioner know the school nurse? And I know that there may not be a nurse in every school and, Similarly, you might not be an OT in every school. But can we be trying to foster a relationship and um, an alliance um, so that we can hear more stories like, like what you're hearing today about this, this group that works so collaboratively together? So um, that would be something that I would um, wonder if we could you know, pursue on an individual basis of trying to do some outreach to our other stakeholders, um, so uh, Susan, would you be able to help us with some takeaway messages for occupational therapy practitioners as well? Sure. You know, Sandy. You know,
1: coming off of what you just said too, I think that um, educators are becoming increasingly aware. I think of what OTs can do in terms of our scope of practice. Some educators, however, I think that we still need to do a fair amount of education to let people know sort of what our whole scope of practice is in the school system. For so long, we were relegated to being um, the handwriting teacher or the person who's going to work on fine motor or the person who is going to work on sensory strategies, and people aren't really thinking maybe about our full scope in terms of supporting the student's performance in that student role and looking at participation and performance across all different school environments, regardless of sort of what the underlying reason or need for therapy may be. or that, or that deficit that would be influencing that performance or participation. So I think that education can certainly go a long way. I think also, I think there's a chance for occupational therapy practitioners to sort of, you know, collaborate with nurses and let and let the school team know that we, because of our training, have a foot in both sort of the educational model and the medical model, and that sometimes we can help to be ambassadors or maybe brokers of some of this medical infer- medical information what other providers like the school nurse maybe aren't available at that moment we can maybe help to do some of that stuff um, Another thing that we can do is maybe help to advocate um, for kids who are dealing with diabetes um, and, and trying to manage their condition but it is impacting their school performance and one way that we might be able to do that is to um, advocate that they be getting a 504 plan um, that's something that, we can help to provide the team with education about, we can help to provide our special education administrators and our other school administrators about, and also parents. So that would be something else. I think when it comes to self-management and chronic conditions, OT practitioners are are really important interprofessional team members. We spent a lot of time today talking about diabetes, but I think we think about other chronic conditions as well, like asthma, um, some mental health conditions, and, and things like that. Um, we can help children and other people who need to manage a chronic condition to develop effective and efficient performance patterns. So those are the habits and routines that we've been talking about so much. And that's actually part of our OT practice framework. It's part of our vocabulary and certainly something that, that we are skilled at doing, helping to people to figure out how to develop more supportive and and healthful habits and routines and then how to implement them in their daily life in their current contextual environment, so in this case, the school. Um, we can also think about how these routines and habits can, can be changed, um, either for better or worse when kids go home, and maybe think about how we can support families a little bit too to make sure that there's a good transition. I think we can also use our skills to think about collaborating with other team members and to un- identify and intervene when there's a mismatch between the person the self-management task and the environment. So, like Sandy had mentioned earlier, um, Sandy the nurse, with regards to counting carbs and calculating dosages, I think you know we could work with the child um, to come up with the best method for kids to do that. So we could, we could reinforce the skill, but we could also analyze sort of where the breakdown is. You know, why isn't this kid regularly doing those things like counting the carbs? What's going on in a child's school day? What process skills are maybe involved that that child needs some support with? Um, what accommodations or modifications could be provided so that they're able to be more effective? And Katie mentioned, you know, using technology. Well, there's a million apps out there, and sometimes it's it's a matter of, finding the right app that matches that the child's performance skills and ones that they're going to feel confident and comfortable using on a regular basis. And I think that's something that we could definitely help with. We are also um, increasingly more involved in multi-tiered systems of support in schools. Um, and I think that we can work with uh, kids with chronic conditions like diabetes and uh, practitioners and nurses and other school personnel to start sort of looking at the system through, through that tiered lens. So, for example, in that first tier, we could be looking at health promotion and wellness promotion. I know at one school that I worked with um, a, a couple years ago, the OTs and PTs collaborated with the school nurse and other health pr- professionals to, um, and, and school professionals as well to launch a healthy lifestyle initiative. So we offered a weekly open gym in the morning, and we raised awareness of health-related issues by providing information sheets to different classrooms. We had a bulletin board that we were responsible for decorating that changed on a regular basis to sort of keep kids um, actively engaged in in what we were doing each week. And we also um, met with small groups of classrooms um, to teach them some new concepts. We taught some kids how to use food logs, um, how to use pedometers, how to take their resting heart rate. Um, And and this is sort of at the tier one level, just getting kids aware of sort of these health promotion and prevention activities. Um, We could maybe work with a small group of kids who are already identified as having a chronic condition in either tier two or tier three, depending on um, how the tiered system is structured at the school, to sort of work with them um, either in a group or on an individual basis to really think about self-management routines and self-management skills that need to be developed. And, And again, to help kids to sort of, Begin to identify on their own what some of those mismatches are. To teach them those problem-solving skills and let them practice them in a safe environment, so that they're able to really sort of begin to become those self-advocates that we've talked about. So those are my thoughts.
0: <laughs> those are those are wonderful. I was thinking of some other um, health-related issues, such as um, seeing the early identifying the early signs of concussion. Um, psychosis and, you know, kids who are saying they're having a stomach ache as a um, physical um, manifestation of their anxiety, um, where there might be some connection between how the OT would be helping to try to address some issues r- related to performance and activity for, anx- uh, for uh, addressing anxiety, but there may be situations where that child's being referred to the nurse um, to address what you know, what, is it a, is it a, a, a physical it can have physical aspects to the uh, mental health concerns? So, um, I think you gave a wonderful overview of um, our our role and in, um, in the in the tiered approaches. And I think that's really speaking to using our full scope of practice. Um, and I, I, I really found that. Very, very helpful. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm sure our listeners did as well. So, And, and Sandy, this is yeah. Katie. I think um, one of the larger
2: takeaways that I kind of have from looking at the research that Susan and I collaborated with, um, that, that our research really indicated that many school nurses are willing to collaborate um, with an interdisciplinary team. So I think OT's just having that knowledge Um, might arm them to be able to kind of simply sit down with school nurses and to brainstorm how um, they can effectively collaborate to build these self-management strategies in children with diabetes at school.
0: That's that's a wonderful point, and uh, I think we want to turn this into actions. We we don't want to leave this with just um, this conversation. We want people to feel that they are equipped to start to introduce themselves and start to make these connections um, on both health, mental and physical health aspects. And I think the, uh, the three of you have really led us into a, some wonderful um, uh, steps that we can take. And I'm, I'm hoping, Susan, that you can um, give us a, 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 maybe a little summation about some action steps for practitioners. And um, and before you do that, I just can't thank the three of you enough for taking the time and and sharing your of your expertise, and I think it's um not just the content that you're showing, but the message that you're giving about the importance of working together as a team and I want to thank you
1: well thank you sandy i mean we've we've talked a lot today about um about diabetes and kids with um that that type of chronic condition, we've also mentioned um the possibility of collaborating with professionals for other chronic conditions. Um, And we've talked a lot about collaborating with nurses in particular today. So I think one of the the action steps that that OT practitioners can do in their school, you know, right after this recording, (laughs) when they get back to school the next day, is to really think about maybe how they can expand um, the circle of their collaborators. So, so often we think about um, collaborating with PTs or speech and language therapists. Um, more and more often social workers or counselors and, of course, the teachers. But now we've talked a, a way about a way that OTs can start collaborating with nurses. You know, Sandy, as you were mentioning, um, some kids with other conditions or um, kids who maybe need needs to be screened for other conditions, like concussions and psychosis, I started thinking, like, What about OTs collaborating with athletic trainers uh, for high school sports teams and and really helping them, you know, with those kids who are identifying as having those symptoms of concussion? What happens when they get back to school? You know, the athletic trainer is going to be focusing on everything that's happening um, in the gym, you know, so we could maybe be the people who could help to to set up um, a good environment and good systems, accommodations and modifications for the student um, in the classroom or in the educational environments. So I think one thing is making sure that we we think about expanding the scope of who we're gonna collaborate with in the school setting and sort of leave no stone unturned. Let everybody know what it is that, um, what our scope of practice is and and how we can be supportive. Um, With that, of course, we also have to balance um, time, which I think is probably a topic uh, for another (laughs) another call. But that's something that definitely needs to be considered. Um, You know, Katie had mentioned, uh, Making sure that you reach out and go meet your school nurse, I mean, that's something that definitely can be done. Um, Taking the time to meet them. Maybe you're even going to talk to them a little bit about what the scope of OT is. So many professionals still don't know, so that education is going to be key. Um, Maybe people even bring that uh, fact sheet about OT's role in diabetes self-management. might be a nice way for them to start that conversation, as well as maybe bringing some of those other resources that, Sandy, you mentioned earlier um, available through the um, school mental health toolkit and the other the other pediatric um, documents that AOTA has um, provided. Um, another thing that I think people can do is get on school-based problem solving and teacher assistance teams. I can't stress this enough. I think this is the way that educators and other school personnel start to understand what it is that we do fully and also, um, they, they see us contributing to these cases sort of in real time and they, and they start to be able to think, oh, I've got this kid and I'm not sure what's going on, or or maybe they have a medical issue and it is being medically managed, but something else isn't quite right. And so we can help them and we can start to work with them and they can understand what it is that, we, that we're able to do and how we can contribute. It's a way for the whole team to understand, again, our our full scope of practice. Um, and, and it can really, when we think about these kids with diabetes, um, can really help. Maybe to, we can be maybe the missing link for those kids that are struggling with some of these diabetes self-management skills, and you know, and those who are doing sort of just fine. But we can we can maybe be that bridge. Um, I think that's that's how I would start if I if I was going to go back to school tomorrow and and start working with with my some of my collaborators.
0: I can only say that each time I, I ha- I'm so honored to to listen to all of you speak, and each time I'm I help to facilitate one of these calls I consider myself so lucky I feel like I learn something each time um, and and it makes me really grateful for our profession and it makes me realize um, you know how important our role is and I'm I know that our listeners today appreciate everything that you've shared Um, I just want to thank Susan Katie and Sandy for joining us today and for sharing such wonderful information and I want to um, remind our listeners that our next pediatric virtual chat will be held in the beginning of May. It, the topic is going to be Caring for the Caregiver, and it will be um, uh, focusing on Honoring Children's Mental Health Awareness Day, which is a SAMHSA-sponsored campaign, and um, the actual day is May 4, 2017. And we hope that you will be able to listen to that chat and make um, connections um, through um, the conversation about um, not just caring for, for the child, but caring for the, for the family, which includes the, the family and or the caregiver um, in terms of making sure that they're mentally and physically um, readied and, and, and supported uh, to do the caregiving, the co-occupation. So thank you very, very much to the three of you, Susan, Katie, and Sandy. And I guess it's so long for now. Um, we hope you'll share this uh, chat um, in your own um, circles and um, give the link out freely because it's available to to uh, those who are members or non-members. And uh, we'll see you next time. But thank, thank you again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.
1: plus.